Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Dean Seal. Hey, great to be here. And Haley Knopf. Hello. Guys, um, as always, tons to talk about. I know, Dean, that in our production meeting, you were like, oh, I would like to mention something that I discovered after the Super Bowl. And then I've just completely blocked all of this out of my brain <laughs> because sports don't stay with me. No, understandable. So I was watching the Super Bowl on Sunday night and I heard the only word you really want to hear when, you're, when you've got podcast brain, which is, I heard the word lawyer on the broadcast. And I was like, hold on. <laughs> sure. Everything perked up. Uh, and it turns out that the, I believe, lead officiant of the Super Bowl this year is a lawyer. Um, and went to, it was a Harvard Law grad who used to work at, I think it's Daikima Gossett um, for a long time and was actually the VP and then general counsel of a company while also officiating in the NFL. So just got to give shouts to that guy. I mean, what a double life. It feels like the jokes write themselves if you don't like how he calls something that like right. there's so many lawyer jokes <laughs> that could somehow meld into referee jokes. I think it's like, you know, a perfect combo. Right. He's good at arguments. What a stressful hobby, right? It's like, <laughs> that's true. You're already Although, a lawyer and now you want to go get yelled at by millions of fans. Maybe right. that's what made him a good lawyer. Maybe he <laughs> just has a real high tolerance for high stress environments. Yeah, you're like the two... You're the two professions that get the most slack ever. I like that so much. Yeah. Um, so as fun as it is to, again, talk about where, where lawyers pop up, which I do the same thing you do, Dean, have that like podcast brain of like, wait, did they say attorney? What What's going on? Um, but we do have a bunch of stuff to cover on today's show. A little later, we're going to talk about the Sarah Palin libel trial. The New York Times prevailed in that this week. We have Frank Runyon, our New York court reporter who covered it, coming on to sort of break down exactly what happened. It had a lot of twists and turns. So it was really interesting. Yeah. And so uh, before I jump into the first story that we wanted to talk about this week, uh, I did want to note we had some breaking news that broke you know, just before our podcast started recording, of course. Um, but a court has ordered former President Donald Trump and two of his children, I believe it's Ivanka and Don Jr., to provide testimony in New York, the New York Attorney General's ongoing investigation into the Trump organization. Um, this is pretty significant because I, I believe, according to this order, they're going to have to go testify within the next 21 days. So we might be seeing a lot of action coming on that front, and we'll obviously stay tuned to it and keep you apprised of any new developments that we get on there. Yeah, it's almost a joke how often we're like, we're going to keep tracking that. I mean, we actually mean it. We do track a lot of stuff right. that we bring up repeatedly on the show as new things develop. But that one seems really high on the list of things to keep track of. Definitely. So we'll definitely keep an eye on that. And, you know, who knows, maybe we'll have a more fulcrum story to follow in the next couple of weeks. But uh, I wanted to start this show out with some big news that we got out of Connecticut this week. So on Tuesday, Remington Arms, once one of the oldest gun makers in the U.S., reached a $73 million settlement with the families of victims of the Sandy Hook Elementary School massacre from December 2012. So this deal ties up a case that was filed in 2014 that challenged the marketing of Remington's AR-15 rifle, the weapon used by the perpetrator of the horrific 2012 shooting. In addition to providing a hefty settlement fund for the victims' families, the agreement also requires Remington, which is now defunct, to release thousands of internal documents that could shed light on marketing practices in the firearm industry. Yeah, this is a pretty big development. I mean, I know... Unfortunately, there's lots of shootings, but it is very difficult to bring cases against gun makers. So this one is pretty surprising. What exactly went on here? 
Yeah, it's definitely surprising. I, I think President Biden actually has called this a historic settlement um, because this is only the second time in recent history that a weapons manufacturer has settled with uh, shooting victims or their families. And here's why. So there was a much smaller settlement back in 2004 between Bushmaster Firearms and the victims of the D.C. sniper attacks. I don't know if you guys remember that, but as a... Unfortunately, yeah, I lived in D.C. then too. Were you also in the area, Dean? Yeah, well, that I was, was... A, yeah, I was a, attending elementary school at the time. Uh, Dean Seal, yeah. you make me feel like I'm 7,000 <laughs> years old. I had moved there for law school at that age, but hey... No big deal. I'm I just going to like internalize my age and we can move on. <laughs> I think I could have just said, yes, I was in the area. My bad. That would have been, <laughs> I would have really appreciated it. Thanks. Yeah. So, well, so uh, this settlement was in 2004 and it was only for about two and a half million dollars. And then just a year after that, Congress passed the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act. It's a federal statute that broadly shields gun makers from liability when their products are used in crimes. So now, fast forward to 2014, and the families of nine Sandy Hook victims claimed in a lawsuit that Remington had used aggressive and violence-glorifying marketing to sell the AR-15 to violence-prone men like the shooter in Sandy Hook. As expected, the aforementioned statute, the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act, if there was a good acronym, I promise I'd use it, uh, <laughs> that statute presented a major hurdle for the plaintiffs in this case, but the case wound its way through to the Connecticut Supreme Court, where, in 2019, the justices ruled that families could sue under a different law. This is the Connecticut Unfair Trade Practices Act, which doesn't allow advertising to promote violence or criminal behavior. Remington appealed that to the U.S. Supreme Court, but the justices waved it off so the case could go forward. Now, under this law, the victims' families were able to argue that Remington had advertised the AR-15 as a means to carry out combat missions against their enemies rather than hunting. So in discovery, the families were able to get thousands of pages of internal documents and perform depositions of Remington's leadership and marketing teams. And according to the plaintiff's lawyers, these discovery docs show how Remington changed its old sober approach to marketing firearms into an aggressive multimedia campaign that pushed sales through first-person shooter video games and touted the AR-15's effectiveness as a killing machine, all in the pursuit of profit. Yikes. That sounds terrible. That cannot look good for Remington. But what are they saying as all of that is playing out? Remington has been quite busy during the uh, course of this case and not a, not a good kind of busy. So since 2018, Remington has filed twice for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protections over some cash restraints, the most recent time being in July 2020, even as gun sales were surging in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, which is a bummer thing to say out loud. But two months after um, that bankruptcy filing, a judge approved a $159 million asset sale for Remington that effectively shut the company down. And I should note that the Sandy Hook families were not happy about this asset sale being approved because they were afraid that it could eat into whatever assets might be left to cover the claims that they had filed. So this past July, Remington offered a $33 million settlement to the victims' families, but they ultimately turned it down. And a lawyer for the families told Law360 back at the time that the deal was proposed that one of the most important intentions of the suit was to provide some preventative measures and essentially ensure that another Sandy Hook doesn't happen. So the deal that we heard about on Tuesday ups that settlement amount to $73 million, which I should note is the maximum amount of coverage that Remington's insurers were able to, to provide. But a big part of that settlement was that those documents and depositions obtained during discovery are now going to be made public. 
Yeah, that's a pretty big deal because that's uh, sounds like a whole cache of documents that really shed light on what's going on with with a giant gunmaker. Right. Yeah. And so uh, the experts who spoke with Law 360 this week, they say that it could do exactly that. And not even just for Remington, but really kind of show some of the industry wide uh, marketing tactics that are used to sell firearms. And it could um, put some pressure on those gun makers to then change those tactics, uh, you know, for fear that they might become exposed again in some kind of litigation. One of the other major parts of this that we've heard from experts is that this whole deal could actually lead insurance companies, like the ones who are now having to shell out for the Remington settlement, as well as banks and other firms that prop up the gun industry to reconsider and, you know, to think a little bit about the potential liability exposure that they'll face for continuing to support the industry. Very interesting. Thanks, Dean. Uh, well, on to another very unfortunate topic, um, the opioid endemic. Great. We're, we're really well. bringing the bummer show. Yeah, today. one crisis to another. Great. <laughs> yeah. Indeed. Yeah. So drug maker Endo Pharmaceuticals, is, um, they're seeing more fallout from the discovery violations in a slew of opioid cases. You may remember that last year, the company and its now former attorneys with Arnold and Porter were called out for failing to comply with discovery orders in at least six states. Um, well, Endo has now been hit with its second default ruling in the debacle, with a Tennessee judge finding the company liable by default for opioid abuse because of that misconduct. Um, it's a pretty wild situation. The judge who issued the latest ruling actually talked to Law360 reporter Jeff Overly this week. And he said it was, quote, the worst case of document hiding he has ever seen, quote, like a plot out of a John Grisham movie. Wow. OK. I mean, That's... he's making the jokes I normally make on the show <laughs> about how things feel like they're from a movie. We should um, get this guy on the podcast. Uh, absolutely. We I should. Mean, I know that we've talked about Endo before and we've talked about this exact discovery dispute. I know Alex Lawson has covered this on the show a couple times, but it's been a while and it's pretty messy. So why don't you sort of recap it for us so everybody knows what we're talking about? Yeah, indeed, it is messy. Endo is facing pretty fairly standard opioid litigation over the sale and marketing of the drug Opana. Hopefully I'm saying that correctly. We don't need to get into it too much. It's your run-of-the-mill accusations from states and municipalities who say the company aggressively marketed the painkiller, leading to high rates of addiction and death. But what's more important here is Arnold and Porter and those discovery violations. Endo and its lawyers have been accused of willfully hiding crucial documents, as well as making false statements. Those included sham attestations related to Endo's discovery searches and its promotional efforts at a so-called pill mill, doling out improper opioid prescriptions. In April of last year, a different Tennessee state judge held Endo in contempt and entered a default judgment against it, finding that the company willfully flouted discovery orders and made false statements to the court about it. Endo tried to appeal, lost, and settled the case for $35 million. But that was really just the beginning of the company's troubles. How does this latest ruling tie in here? Is that stemming from the same alleged misconduct? Yeah. So after that first default judgment, plaintiffs in other endo cases started sniffing around because those purportedly false statements and the document hiding and such really affected all of the cases. Yeah. Definite chum in the water vibes here. Where it's like, <laughs> yes. hey, look what happened over there. We're also suing them for the same thing. 
It essentially meant plaintiffs had been building cases on an incomplete record just everywhere. And investigations into Endo's conduct are ongoing in a bunch of cases right now, um, including in bellwether matters and multi-district opioid litigation. Last year, Endo ended up settling a case in New York as well after the attorney general's office accused the company and its attorneys of, quote, knowingly and incurably corrupting this jury trial via a, quote, years-long pattern of discovery misconduct. And now this other Tennessee judge has entered a default ruling in yet another case. That judge, Circuit Court Judge Jonathan Lee Young, awarded the default orally at a hearing last week. This is a mess. I mean, I know we have judges all over the place, including the latest one in Tennessee, basically saying as much. What what else did we hear from the judge? Judge Young spoke with um, Jeff Overly on Monday afternoon, and he did not mince words. In comparing the ordeal to a Grisham movie, Judge Young said it was like that, quote, except it was even worse than what Grisham could dream up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Straight to the point, Judge Young said Endo had shirked its discovery obligations in a brazen manner and that Endo's failure to produce important materials wasn't just some sort of innocent mistake. It was a concerted effort to hide documents. The judge added that plaintiffs in the case had spent millions of dollars on discovery that is, quote, wasted. (laughs) So uh, how did Endo take that? Do they believe that they've wasted uh, all of this discovery money? (laughs) They do not. Okay. Uh, Predictably, the company has long contended that the discovery issues were logistical, just the result of sprawling, complex litigation involving numerous parallel legal proceedings. And as for the most recent ruling, Endo said it strongly disagrees and that there is no valid basis to support discovery sanctions. The company also said that the plaintiffs in the current case hadn't yet asked Endo for discovery and the court hadn't issued any discovery-related orders. But the plaintiffs say that's not exactly true. They said more than a dozen Tennessee counties have filed letters indicating document production by Endo, and they also have email chains where attorneys have been negotiating specific things they wanted. This one stays messy. Just in everything that they could fight about, this seems like they are. Um, I I do think we should kind of button up a little about what has gone on with Arnold and Porter because they were really at the center of the, you know, original sin, if you will, that spawned all of these troubles. They're not representing Endo anymore, right? Correct. Yeah, the firm and Endo went their separate ways in October. Um, and Skadden is now representing Endo, uh, trying to clean up the mess a bit and work with... <laughs> all of the ongoing uh, investigations. And we really don't know much about who pulled the plug on that relationship between Endo and the firm. Um, Endo just filed a bunch of notices of withdrawal in cases without really elaborating. Haley, what's next? I mean, like, what's, you know, what's the next dust up? What are we looking forward to now? Well, it's hard to say for sure, but Endo has already signed several additional settlements Um, And like I said earlier, there are a bunch of ongoing investigations, so I really wouldn't be surprised if we see maybe more default rulings or at least sanctions orders. We will see. (laughs) 
This week, Sarah Palin lost her libel lawsuit against the New York Times. But the district court judge and a jury found her case deficient after all the evidence was presented at trial. Our own Frank Runyon was in the courtroom, and he's with us today to explain why the New York Times won the case. Welcome back to the show, Frank. Thanks for having me. It's been a while since you've been on, uh, but there's always some some action in the New York courts. And I'd love to hear about exactly what brought Sarah Palin to New York City. Well, that's a story that starts back in 2011 um, with the Jared Loeffner shooting in Arizona. As you may remember, uh, he ended up uh, killing six people and grievously wounding um, Representative Gabby Giffords. She was shot in the head. There were people that were pointing fingers saying that uh, Sarah Palin's political action committee had basically incited this violence by distributing a map that had crosshairs on it. And some of them were over her uh, district and her name was on this um, as well. And the the idea from Palin's perspective was that we want to target and take back these districts because they're pro Obamacare. Um, Again, 2011. Um, But fast forward to 2017, there is another shooting where uh, that happens in uh, Virginia with uh, Republican uh, congressmen who are under fire. And so the New York Times, this is 2017, um, decides we want to write a really strong uh, editorial, um, you know, day up, same day as a shooting. Um, and so they start putting this thing together. The editor is James Bennett. And um, basically he has uh, one of his writers, uh, Elizabeth Williamson, draft something. He goes in, he's going to punch it up. He actually rewrites the whole thing. And what he does is he inserts a couple of statements that become the center of uh, Palin's libel lawsuit. He puts in statements that essentially say there is a clear link to incitement here uh, that links basically Sarah Palin's political action committee to the Jared Loeffner shooting in 2011. And that is what's at the center of or was at the center of this case. So we'll get to the outcome in a second. But could you first tell us what the trial was like? What what did each side argue? So this is a battle of the titans. I mean, you have a, a major conservative figure, Sarah Palin, and uh, duking out with the New York Times. This is a case uh, that brings up the very standard for libel. And uh, in, you have the First Amendment, you have all of these things floating in the air. So it was a really important, a really landmark case that had the potential to test uh, the standard of actual malice in in court once again. And people had. Yeah, uh, Frank, yeah, I go. feel like we should start writing the screenplay right now. It's got all the big factors you'd want. It's two heavyweights in Palin and The New York Times. It's sort of all of the cultural divide that we have in America right now in one trial. It really was. And, and all of this was totally freighted. Uh, with the fractured political discourse that we have in the country right now. And so all of that was going on in the background, aside from the actual legal issues that the judge and the jury had to consider. I mean, I'm a nerd, though. So let's talk about those actual legal issues. What did Palin's camp say? And then what did New York Times say about what was sort of the central part of the case here? Well, Palin's contention was basically the New York Times had out for her. Um, and there was a bias that was just endemic in the New York Times editorial board. And uh, they were, uh, if they didn't know that it was probably false uh, before they published it, um, they recklessly disregarded the truth in publishing something they already 
had predetermined a predetermined narrative in their heads. And so for that reason, she was saying the New York Times should be held liable for that. And what did the Times say in response? I mean, obviously, they, I would imagine, said that they followed journalistic practices and didn't do anything wrong here. Not quite. Um, The New York Times certainly acknowledged the fact that they made factual mistakes here. And that was sort of the key moment in the trial where James Bennett, the editor, gets onto the stand. And this is every journalist's nightmare for those of you who aren't journalists. Um, but, uh, you know, why did you insert those words? Why didn't you check those facts? Um, oh my God. You know, why? Yes, exactly. <laughs> I have had, I've had this exact nightmare multiple times. Well, I've had it more often than you have, because I've been in this, uh, case for the last week, <laughs> but <laughs> at, at, at any rate, um, they essentially said, look, this was an honest mistake. We put this language in there. We corrected it about 12 hours after we put it in, basically the morning after. And it, Bennett was very contrite on the stand. Uh, you know, he said he just deeply regrets this. And, um, you know, although they did make these mistakes, they were moving fast and it, it wasn't out of any sense of malice. Well, before we actually got to a verdict, you know, after all this evidence is presented and it's fascinating enough just hearing you explain it, We got another twist in this case, and that was um, District Court Judge Jed Rakoff. He said he would dismiss the suit and enter a judgment as a matter of law before the jury had rendered their verdict. That, to me, seems like a pretty unusual order of events, if you will. Yes. Tell me more about what happened there. Right. Well, you know, it used to be called a directed verdict, this kind of thing. Um, But uh, it is now called uh, the less exciting judgment as a matter of law, where basically the time said, look, Palin failed to provide the jury with the evidence that any reasonable jury would need in order to conclude that we acted with actual malice. And there's a very high standard there. And it has to be clear and convincing evidence. I've heard people say it's like 75%. You know, this is not the classic preponderance standard, you know, 50%, 50 50.1%. And uh, essentially, the Times argument was, it's just not there. Um, they didn't, uh, you know, show that evidence at trial. And so uh, the judge essentially agreed. And he pointed to emails uh, that Bennett said, and he, he sent the story back to the original writer and said, hey, can you take a look at this? I reworked it. Sorry about that. Um, and, you know, the judge saying, look, I mean, this guy wasn't reckless uh, in his uh, in any disregard for the truth. This is, uh, you know, it seemed to come down on the side of what the Times was saying, which is, that it was essentially an honest uh, mistake, but he definitely wasn't letting the times off the hook. Um, he was saying that it was a really unfortunate um, editorializing by the times. Um, and he said that he understood why Sarah Palin filed the lawsuit in this case. Nevertheless, uh, the evidence didn't meet the standard. And so he told the attorneys after the jury was off deliberating, um, look, I've looked at this evidence and as a matter of law, it's just not here. And I'm going to tell you that in advance uh, to be fair to you all. The attorneys were surprised uh, because, you know, sometimes judges do this, but they'll wait until after the verdict to say this. And this became controversial because, as we found out just yesterday, the jurors found out that Judge Rakoff had made that decision essentially dismissing the case. 
before they even rendered their verdict. They got push notifications on their phone uh, from Law 360 or from New York Times <laughs> or, or from who they were, whoever they were following. Yeah, I feel like this story is almost eating its own tail where it's like it's about news and how that gets disseminated and what's in it and what goes too far. And then the judge himself made news in this unusual timing of of this declaration that he was going to issue the judgment as a matter of law. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that seems like it could pose some problems for what the jury ultimately decided. Right. So this is a story I'm writing today. Um, so I hope I don't scoot myself here, but basically, <laughs> um, hopefully I'll make my deadline and everything will be fine. Um, but basically, yeah, I mean, there are appealable issues here, right? Was the jury tainted by, uh, those seeing those news alerts now important. The reason that we know about this is because the judge wrote an order, put it on the docket and said, listen, my law clerk was doing the standard. Hey, how do we do with the jury instructions? Were they clear enough? And then, you know, unsolicited, a couple of them blurted out, hey, uh, I think you should know that we saw some news alerts about this. And uh, but it in no way uh, impacted our decision and it didn't play a role in deliberations. And Mm -hmm. uh, the judge also noted nobody objected when I said I was going to do this ahead of the verdict. Nobody objected. So um, the judge Rakoff playing a little bit of defense there as well. So there is. There is this question about whether or not this is going to figure in an appeal by Palin. Everyone had expected that Palin would appeal uh, almost no matter what, uh, because there has been this discussion about challenging um, New York Times v. Sullivan um, and the actual malice standard. But there is, you know, there is a problem. If the evidence isn't there, then it's not there and it's not a great case to appeal on. Yeah. And just to be clear on New York versus Sullivan, that's a bedrock in um, libel law. And that's has to do with the standard to which public figures are held in these cases. That's right. Yeah. So this could, you know, we could see more action here from Palin. It seems like we are set up potentially with some grounds for an appeal because of the unusual order here. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you, you'd never know what is going to happen next in, in a case like this one. But uh, it, it'll be interesting to see, obviously, how it plays out. Uh, these kinds of cases uh, just really come along uh, more rarely, uh, these uh, defamation cases against major public figures um, and you know, major news outlets. So this was absolutely an exciting uh, trial to watch. And like you said, it might not be over yet. Well, we will keep watching it, and not just because we're a bunch of journalists talking about it, although we do have a vested interest in how this turns out, um, but really appreciate your reporting on it, Frank. Thanks for coming to talk about it. My pleasure. show is something offbeat. And I will report that as much as I give guff to sports in general, I am always pretty hyped to watch Super Bowl commercials. So I wanted to ask you guys if you noticed the one uh, for VR headsets. It was it had this like cute shaggy dog puppet that was in a band. 
And it was set to the Simple Mind song, Don't You Forget About Me, which slaps. So (laughs) I perked up and paid attention. Yeah. I may not have understood what the commercial was for, but I did hear the song. And I was like, oh, let's go. You know, okay. Lead (laughs) me into my next question, which is, did you understand what the commercial was about? Because (laughs) it's really about the VR headsets, but it all ties into the metaverse. So I wanted Mm. to get your all's like a vibe check on where are we on the metaverse? Um, I feel like my my response is like, well, uh, you you tell me what what you think the metaverse is, and uh, we'll see if it it's the same as my explanation. You know what, Dean? Yes. I'm so happy to hear you say that because earlier in the show, um, our age difference really was an, in stark relief, oh, and wow. I'm happy to hear now that we're coming back together in general confusion <laughs> about what the heck the metaverse even really is. Right. Yeah, I mean, maybe I should back up just a second and explain it in case there are listeners that are like, wait, what are you even talking about, Amber? So the concept is squishy, but basically it's virtual reality. It's, you know, people call it like an online space where you can socialize and work and play, but all is avatars. So it's essentially the plot of every bad 90s sci-fi movie that we're all just going to be in our houses, but on VR headsets doing things in the metaverse. Wow. Yeah. I and mean, it's going to face- be run by Facebook or. Well, uh, <laughs> it's uh, unclear who will exactly run everything, but Facebook is all in, as you guys probably remember, because it was everywhere and you couldn't avoid this news. They renamed themselves Meta. So right. they love the metaverse. Well, so that makes sense. Now, I mean, so what's our what's our big news here today? Do we have some new entrants in the metaverse? Should we be joining the metaverse? Those might be two different questions. Thank you for bringing me back on track. People are probably at this point wondering why in the world I'm talking about Super Bowl commercials, about shaggy dogs playing cool songs, and the metaverse. Here's why. This week, news came out that the first big law firm got into the metaverse and bought a bunch of property there. Errant Fox announced that the firm purchased digital land in the metaverse in an area called Decentraland. I think that's how you say it. But they are looking to build a virtual office there. Is this like a, a state, a country, a county, a municipality? <laughs> what is Decentraland? I mean, to me, the name implies that it's decentralized. So it's none of those things, Haley. It's the metaverse. Oh. It's different. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> oh, my brain. Yeah. I mean, this is a really interesting one. I sort of love when new things come along. We're not sure how much they'll take hold. I'm a little hesitant to go on record being too uh, skeptical about the metaverse because what if five years from now we're all in there? What if right. we record yeah. the pod in there in five years? This it's may be entirely really possible. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I don't want to be that like Luddite person that's like, oh, that metaverse. That's crazy. I remember when we lived in the real world. That's all you're saying. (laughs) Like fools. We didn't need to be there. Yeah. So there is this vibe, though, right? When a big law firm jumps on something like this of like, is this just to get some press? Is this like a publicity stunt? What are they up to? So I did want to kind of drop down on what the firm says is their logic behind it. The firm's crypto chair seems to be leading the charge here, which, I mean, that makes sense because crypto is also just made up currency. So it's everything you can digitally make up. This guy's into it. His name is James Williams. He told Law.com that the purchase does a couple things. It helps the firm get a prime spot in the metaverse early and establish themselves as a leader in that way. And it also shows to their clients that may also be simultaneously exploring getting into the metaverse 
that the firm knows what's up. They're going to be in that world, that they're on top of how it all works. So kind of serves two purposes there. There's also some other benefits to getting in early. The firm chair, Anthony Lupo, said the digital property has already increased its value by 25%. So <laughs> prices going up fast. <laughs> Goodness. I mean, I have so many questions. 25% from what? <laughs> okay, so I didn't right. check down the number. <laughs> no, I don't no. think they've said how much they spent. But right. uh, our producer, one of our producers, Stephen Trader, did say in our production meeting, like, is this like Bitcoin? Should we all be getting in now? And he makes a point. If it's already gone up 25% for this firm, maybe. Yeah. I. So my friends were watching a documentary that was released with Sundance this year in the, you know, weird virtual format. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I should have looked up the title, but they were basically talking about how people are getting married in the metaverse. Sure. And now I'm wondering if the firm is like, you know, they've got a bunch of like divorce attorneys on hand for like, <laughs> inevitable metaverse divorces. So I don't know if you guys tuned in when Mark Zuckerberg announced that Facebook was being renamed Meta and had that whole press conference about it where he mm -hmm. like his avatar was in a conference room sitting around a table with ones that looked like bears and like all sorts of crazy looking <laughs> avatars. But he just looked like a Mark Zuckerberg guy. Yeah, right. I laughed a lot about that press conference. I thought it was really funny. And is this mm -hmm. what we're doing? We're just avataring it up and sitting at a conference table. That seems Super not worth it. But I do think some law firms are thinking that that actually could be cool for clients that are in other locations. If everybody actually has the VR headsets and you go into some space and you can project into the metaverse all of your slides and your videos of stuff you're talking about and all of that, it's just maybe a little more immersive than just mm -hmm. a Zoom call. Yeah. So I, I guess that's the slightly more boring reason that people want to get into it. Mm. It does. It, that makes a little bit more sense, I feel like, just from a constructive standpoint. But I don't know, I guess because we're law people, I my mind is just reeling with all the questions of, you know, like, wh where's the jurisdiction in the metaverse? <laughs> yeah. If you get married in the metaverse, is it does it count? Is that going to be the new Las Vegas of, of marriages? where I know, can't wait for metaverse? my first invitation to a metaverse <laughs> wedding. I'm really going to go all out in what I wear to that. Dress so. to the nines. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Um, yeah, so we're going to have to maybe keep an eye on this so that if we feel like we need to get in here, that we can join the metaverse, guys. Hey, I I'm all for it. Let's, let's let our meta masters, uh, let's, let's submit to them now. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> all right. Keeping tabs on that for next time. Um, but thanks for being with me today, Dean, and also Haley. Yeah, great being here. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, and our guest this week, Frank Runyon. We'd also like to thank our contributing reporters, Jeff Overly and Mike Curley. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like anything we've talked about on Pro Se, we'd love if you left us a written review, five stars, that really helps other people find our show. And if you want to read more about all of the stuff we've chatted about, check out our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.